Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn DeWire and this is episode 14, The Man Who Would Be King. In this episode, we're returning to the story of medieval Ireland and enter a largely forgotten but fascinating period of Irish history as we look at Ireland in the aftermath of what had been a titanic struggle between Brian Boru and Wales Shocknell. This show will carry us all the way through to 1072 and includes the intriguing story of the Gaelic-Irish reaction to the Norman invasion of England in 1066. In this we will see Gaelic-Irish kings launch raids against William the Conqueror. All this and much more is coming up. Before we begin, I would like to mention my website, irishhistorypodcast.ie. There are numerous articles on various aspects of Irish history and hundreds of pictures of historical sites across Ireland. If you like the podcast, you're going to find lots there to keep you entertained between the shows. That's irishhistorypodcast.ie. It was on a Sunday early in September 1022, at the island fortress of Croinish on Loch Ennell, that the High King, Mwael Shocknell MacDonald, drew breath for the last time. As life ebbed from the 73-year-old High King, a man who many regard as the greatest of High Kings in Gaelic-Irish history, Ireland was plunged into a crisis. Mwael Shocknell had been a towering figure over Gaelic Ireland for over four decades. But now, in his absence, it was far from clear who would succeed him. A situation that created an uncertain future in a world that had very little stability to begin with. For most people, this signalled the start of yet another round of violent and turbulent upheaval as kings would fight each other to succeed Mwael Shocknell. No one understood the potential problems that could come with such uncertainty better than the Norse king of Dublin, Citric Silkenbeard. Although he despised male Shocknell, Citric knew only too well 
a world without him was a very dangerous place for Viking Dublin. As word spread of Moyle Shockland's death from the O'Neills in the north to Brian Baru's family in the south, kings would soon be on the warpath trying to take the position where Shocknell had just vacated. If any of these kings wanted to truly establish dominance over Ireland, Viking Dublin would be one of the first places they would attempt to conquer. The city had grown to be the most important economic settlement in Ireland. Gaelic Irish kings constantly sought to control it and its vast resources. In this situation, Citric was faced with a dilemma. As kings jockeyed for position in the coming years, he would inevitably have an army at his gates seeking submission or alternatively threatening war. This dilemma that Citric would face was made more difficult by the fact that the previous decade had been very tough for the Vikings at Dublin. In 1014, Citric had watched from the city's walls as the forces of the city were decimated at a battle north of Dublin at Clontarf. Although the victors, Brian Baru's Kingdom of Munster, had been too weakened in the battle to exploit their victory, Dublin had suffered nonetheless. At the Battle of Clontarf, the High King of the Day, Brian Baru, had died, and Wales Shocknell took his place pretty seamlessly. The following year, in 1015, after making peace with the Northern O'Neill King, Flavartochu O'Neill, Wales Shocknell had arrived at Dublin at the head of a large army. Citric appears to have resisted, but the city's stout defences could not withstand such a force. And Citric paid dearly for this. Although he survived the attack, he was literally left ruling a charred pile of timbers. Well Shocknell had not just captured the city, but he had burned the fortress and many of the houses at the settlement. Despite the fact that the Vikings began the hard task of felling trees and rebuilding Dublin, lean years followed this attack. War was bad for trade, and by the 11th century, trade was the main source of Dublin's wealth and income. Unsurprisingly, the city slipped into a recession. This was not helped by the fact that its main trading partners across the Irish Sea in England were also being ravaged by a war between respective kings there, Cnut and Ethelred. The historian Benjamin Hudson has pointed out that the lower quality coins that were produced in Dublin in the late 1010s is probably evidence of Citric Silkenbeard attempting to devalue Dublin's currency, hoping to stimulate business. It all sounds very familiar. Slowly but surely, Citric tried to turn things around. In 1018, he was successfully able to raid the monastic town of Kells in Welsh Shocknell's territory of Meath. Fueled by vengeance for the attack of 1015, the raid was an orgy of violence that saw Citric's army butcher many taking refuge in the church. There was also an economic motive behind the attack, as Citric carried away the monastery's wealth and many people too. These people were locked in chains and marched to Dublin. There they would be taken to the source of the city's vast wealth, the human equivalent of a cattle mart, where they would be sold into slavery. Although this raid of 1018 may have signified the start of Dublin's recovery, it would take years to overcome the devastation 
of the attack of 1015. In this context, Citric knew all too well the consequences of making the wrong call when an army turned up to his gates. And now that Muel Shockner was dead, this would be happening soon and possibly frequently. For Citric, the key question was who would this be? Well, where Shockner's son, where Shockner got, had replaced him as king of the local kingdom of Mead, he was in no position to take the high kingship or even dominate the wider southern O'Neill region. He wasn't going to threaten Citric in any major way, but there were plenty who would. And in particular, there were two kings chomping at the bit to have a go. The key players in the 1020s were Flabertochu O'Neill, king of the northern O'Neills since 1004, who saw himself as a natural successor to Muel Shocknell, and the king of Munster, Brian Baru's heir and son, Dunica. And it's Dunica who we're going to meet first. In Munster, Dunica Machbreen, which literally means Dunica, son of Brian, must have relished the news of Muel Shocknell's death. In 1014, Dunica had been catapulted into a position of power when not only his father, Brian, but his older brother, Murkud, had been killed at the Battle of Clontarf. Murkud, Dunica's older brother, had been the more able of the two brothers and Brian Baru had clearly prepared him as his successor. However, when Murkud was cut down at Clontarf, suddenly the path to power lay open to Dunica and he began with the misfortunate task of arriving back in his home kingdom of Thomond with his father and brother's bodies. It was never a great way to begin. From the outset, Dunica had a hard time filling Brian Baru's shoes. Under Gaelic Irish custom, while it was entirely legitimate to do so, the eldest son did not necessarily have to succeed his father. Instead, the wider clan group chose a successor from the extended family. Although Dunica did succeed Brian, there were many who felt he wasn't the man for the job. Before Dunica could even celebrate his first Christmas as king, he would have to face his own half-brother Tig in battle. Although he emerged victorious, crisis after crisis piled up as enemies popped up from all quarters. Scarcely a few months after defeating Tig, he faced the Ogarnacht, a rival dynasty from East Munster, in battle. The Ogarnacht had once been the kings of Munster before Dunica's father, Brian Baru, had annihilated them. Now, sensing Dunica was weak, ruling a divided kingdom, they took their chance for vengeance and attacked him and defeated him in battle. In the hyper-competitive world that was Gaelic Ireland, Dunica was now seen as a lame duck and the surrounding powers rounded on the young king. 1016 saw the king of Connacht take advantage and rampage across Dunica's home kingdom of Thomond. These defeats only spurred on Dunica's enemies and he had been in no place to even think about challenging Wales Shocknell for the high kingship. He faced far too much internal opposition. Indeed, in 1022, as he heard of Muel Shocknell's death, he only had to look at the stump of his mutilated right hand to be constantly reminded of the extent of the opposition he faced. In 1019, he had been seriously maimed when he barely survived an assassination attempt. 
a man from a neighbouring family, Donal, son of Cahernach, of the Ikashan, had attacked Dunica. Striking him initially on the head, the sword had glanced away and struck him on the arm. In some accounts, he lost his entire hand, while in others, it was just part of his palm and his thumb. Either way, such a mutilation magnified the legitimacy problems Dunica already faced. To lose a hand was bad enough, in a practical sense, but for a king in Gaelic Ireland, this was deeply problematic. Although kingship was changing, traditional ideas dictated that a king should be without physical blemish, and the loss of his hand only served to further undermine Dunica's rule and the very idea he was fit for kingship. Nonetheless, Dunica survived, and by Imwell Shocknell's death in 1022, he was in a more stable position and could see a major opportunity opening up. With Imwell Shocknell gone, he could expand without fear of the High King perceiving him as a threat. That said, there were several others who saw the same opportunity in this power vacuum. In 1022, the most powerful rival for Dunica was Flabertoch O'Neill, King of the Northern O'Neills. But Flabertoch was based in Ulster, far away. Dunica could at least try and expand locally without immediately clashing with Flabertoch. However, first he needed to remove the potential for internal opposition for once and for all. No doubt hardened by the first difficult eight years of his reign, he showed a level of ruthlessness necessary to succeed in such a hard world. The main threat to his power was his half-brother Tyg, and in 1023, Dunica took decisive action, and deciding he could no longer tolerate such a challenge, he had Tyg assassinated. This was all part of establishing himself within Munster, and in 1025, he was able to launch a raid into the neighbouring province of Connacht and take hostages. Things were looking up for Dunica. But if he wanted to expand further, he would now have to challenge Flabertoch, who would not take any challenge lying down. Flabertoch had waited too long for his day in the sun to be outshone by the likes of Dunica, and as we shall see now, he wasn't a man to be trifled with. Flabertoch O'Neill had found himself in perhaps a slightly stronger position than Dunica had when Wales Shocknell had died in 1022. However, the two kings were very similar in many ways. Flabertoch, like Dunica, had faced questions over his legitimacy. His father was Murkatoch O'Neill, son of the High King Donal, who had died in 980. While Murkatoch had royal blood, his mother was a bondswoman named Cress, one of the few times a person from this class of semi-slaves makes it into the historical record. Under the regressive, elitist, Gaelic-Irish law, the child of such a relationship was deemed unfit for kingship. In spite of this, Flabertoch had become king of the Northern O'Neill when the king, his uncle, A, had died in 1004. He had proven himself a more than able king when he had successfully and vociferously resisted Brian Boru's attempt to conquer the north. In 1008, Flabertoch was one of the last to submit to Brian when he finally gave in and bowed the head. But within four years, he had launched a revolt. 
he had kept the Northern O'Neills away from the intrigues around the Battle of Clontarf. And in its aftermath, he had supported Muelk Shocknell as High King. So, by 1022, Flavertoch must have felt that he was the natural successor to Muelk Shocknell. In 1025, he began to lay his claim when he swept south, attacking the Kingdom of Brega, a constituent territory that formed the Southern O'Neill Kingdom. After this, he continued on to Dublin. Citric now faced that all-important dilemma of what to do. No doubt he remembered the last time Flabberthoch had been to Dublin and the city had been devastated. Indeed, he had been lucky to survive. In 1025, the answer was plain and simple and Citric offered no resistance and submitted to Flabberthoch. Jubilant, this northern army set out for home. Flabberthoch had done well, but on the route north he was caught off guard. He was attacked and defeated by the armies of Welshocknell Goth, the son and successor to the High King Welshocknell, who was no doubt trying to stop Flabberthoch's push south. In late 1025, as Flabberthoch completed his journey home, he must have been seething. Where Shocknell got, had taken hostages, Flavertuck had taken from Brega, and in the process undermined and humiliated him. However, the news wasn't all bad for Flavertuck in late 1025. No sooner was he home than news arrived that that same king, where Shocknell got, who had attacked him, had died. For Flavertuck, this was great news. It presented a great opportunity. In the medieval world, the death of any such ruler created a period of instability, and now he would be able to exploit this to enforce his authority over Mead and the Southern O'Neill territories. As winter closed in around Gaelic Ireland in 1025, Flavertoch laid his intentions bare. As life ground to a halt in the dark days of late December, the Ichriochan family from Flavertoch's kingdom of Tyrone moved southeast and attacked the monastery of Termenfecken. On Christmas night, they plundered and burned the monastery, situated on the borders of the Southern O'Neill Kingdom. This raid on Termenfecken Monastery was a clear indication by Flavertoch about what was coming next. The Southern O'Neills would pay the consequences of the attack on Flavertoch earlier in the year. In 1026, all eyes in the southern O'Neill lands must have been directed toward their northern border, waiting for news or perhaps spotting a scouting party that might give some indication that Flabbertoch was on the way. However, it wasn't Flabbertoch they should have been worried about, because suddenly Dunnacha, buoyed on by his victories in Munster, swept up from the south and forced submission from both the two major southern O'Neill kingdoms, Brega and Mead. In an attack that took everyone by surprise, the man who had struggled for so long then went on to attack Leinster before descending on North Dublin. Like the year before with Flabberthoch, Citric offered no resistance. He had just started to build Dublin up again after Mwela Shockner's attack of 1015 and the risks associated with trying to fight Dunnaka off were just too high. Dunnaka stayed for three days, camped around the city. As he departed, Citric must have been uneasy. 
Although Dublin was intact, only a year previously, Donica's main challenger, Flavertoch, had taken Citric's submission. And now he knew that Flavertoch would not allow Donica away with this audacious raid, and Dublin could well get caught in the crossfire. Later that year, sure enough, Flavertoch gathered an army and moved south, again taking the southern O'Neill kingdoms of Mead and Brega. No doubt weakened by where Shockler Goth's death, they submitted. Having secured the possession of these lands, Flavertoch seems to have stopped short of pushing on to Dublin. In Dublin that winter, Citric must have been relieved. As Flavertoch moved south, worries must have abounded that he would continue on and raid Dublin. But, as we have seen, he seems to have been content to have solidified his control over the O'Neill territories. In this situation, both Flavertoch and Citric must have been happy. But Dunica was unquestionably a loser in this scenario. He could not even look towards challenging Flavertoch, as he had a far more immediate problem, closer to home. One that he had neglected, and now it was brewing into a major storm. Immediately to the east of Donica's kingdom of Munster, lay the small kingdom of Ossery. It had been a relatively minor player in politics since the 9th century, when the then king of Ossery, Phelan Machrahan, had challenged the high king of the day, Mwela Shocknell I. However, in the aftermath of the Battle of Clontarf, Ossery, under its king, Donica Machgillapatric, who we will call Gillapatric to avoid any confusion, had grown in power. While the other Donica, King of Munster, was busy attempting to control Brega, Dublin and Meath, Gillapatric allied himself to the Ogonacht of Cashel, the one-time rulers of Munster and Donica's bitter enemy. Together they now posed a serious threat to Donica. In 1027, having had his way north barred by Flavertoch, Donica finally copped on to the fact that he now faced a serious threat close to home. But when he attempted to curb the power of Ossery in a raid in 1027, he was driven back. This was disastrous. If Donica couldn't even marshal his own neighbours, he could never hope to dominate the entire island. Things didn't improve either. In 1031, he was humiliated again when Gillapatric raided Munster, attacking Dunica's fortress at Dunnishgi in Tipperary, and laid down the gauntlet to Dunica by executing the steward of the fortress. Dunica had to respond, and there was only one way, with fire and sword, and so the army of Munster set out for Ossery. In a punitive attack, they stole cattle and anything they could lay their hands on, but it all came to nothing when Donica was defeated in battle by Gillapatrick. Donica himself must have known his power was shrinking. It was becoming increasingly clear he would never emulate his father, Brian Baru. Indeed, Donica would do well to maintain his own borders. In 1030, while he had successfully curbed Donica's power, a great opportunity opened up for Gillapatrick as Flabertoch O'Neill effectively withdrew from trying to expand his power, Flabertoch's mind was focused elsewhere. Rome, to be exact. In 1030, he set out on a pilgrimage to the Holy City, 
while this must have been a wondrous journey for Flabertoch, seeing the marvels of Rome still having large sections of the imperial city intact. It removed him as an active player in terms of politics in Ireland. Although the 5,000 kilometre round trip had shortened substantially from the three years it had taken in the 7th century, Flavertuch was still away from Ireland for a year, which weakened his overall power. This situation allowed Gilapatric to continue to expand and grow in power unhindered. This situation allowed the rising power of Gilapatric in Austria to continue to expand unhindered. After his raid on Munster in 1031, Gilapatric went from strength to strength, turning east and focusing his attention on the Kingdom of Leinster. In 1036 or 1037, the exact year is not certain, he captured the king, Dunacha Macdooling, and blinded him in an act designed to maim rather than kill. This incident saw the king, Macdooling, wounded horrifically. He lingered on for a week, but eventually succumbed to what must have been an awful death in the absence of painkillers. Presumably, if he was lucky, he would have been given copious amounts of alcohol to try and dull his senses and kill the pain. Gilapatric was unperturbed. His plan had been to remove the king through mutilation. That he died was inconsequential, and Gilapatric assumed the kingship of Leinster. Controlling the southeast corner of Ireland, his power was expansive, as his influence also penetrated eastern Munster through his alliance with the O'Gonacht of Cashel. For Gilapatric, his rise to power had a deadly personal cost, as in late 1037, both of his sons, Diarmid and Murkatok, were killed the latter being assassinated. This did not hinder his insatiable desire for expansion. In 1039, he began to expand further, now raiding north of the Liffey into Brega, driving as far north as Drogheda. After these victories, it really appeared that Gilapatric was going to emulate the feats of Brian Baru in rising from relative obscurity. But it wasn't to be. Fatal disease and illness were all too common in the medieval world. So many illnesses that are curable today were deadly until the invention of modern medicines and antibiotics. Wounds could get infected and kill if a person was unlucky. While the nobility did live easier lives than ordinary folk, death did not recognise such distinctions. And in 1039, Gilapatric contracted some unknown illness and died. What exactly it was, we will never know, but this must have happened frequently in medieval Ireland, where people, seemingly in the prime of their lives, could die from what we would think as relatively curable diseases. Gilapatric's death would inevitably lead to the rise of a new power dynasty in Leinster. We'll examine that later in the show, but first, we need to return to Dublin, which is becoming increasingly important through the 11th century. As we have seen, Dublin was increasingly important to Gaelic kings hoping to dominate Ireland. The city's importance derived not from military capabilities, but its immense wealth from its trading networks. By 1030, Dubliners were enjoying the 15th year free from attack as Citric had successfully steered the city out of the dark times that had followed from Welsh Ochtnall's sack of 1015. 
Although the Vikings were defeated in battles while on raids, the city itself was increasingly stable. In these periods, Dublin thrived. The quays and the Liffey teemed with activity, with ships coming from across Europe. This was a period of great expansion for the Vikings. Traders in Dublin would have swapped stories about areas as far away as the Viking settlements in Newfoundland to the trading station at Novgorod in southern Russia. It's incredible to think that a thousand years ago, stories of Arabs from Baghdad or Native Americans who the Norse called Skraelings could be heard in Dublin. These trading connections made the city vastly wealthy. The extent of the city's economic recovery after the difficult years in the aftermath of Clontarf was seen in 1029 when a local king, Riachon, captured Citric Silkenbeard's son, Amlob. In order to see him safely returned, Citric was able to stump up the astronomical ransom of 1,200 cows, six score Welsh horses, 60 ounces of gold and 60 ounces of pure silver. Despite its great wealth, the city, so keenly sought by Gaelic kings, wasn't the most pleasant place to live. The city itself was composed of narrow streets which were lined with densely packed houses. Stalls were erected outside some of these houses where merchants sold their products. Animals roamed the streets, and in general it would have had a distinctly rural feel to it when compared to urban life today. On hot summer's days, this settlement must have been unbearable. The smells from workshops, smoke from fires, mixed with the aromas from cooking, coupled with the pungent stench of the city's open sewers and cesspits, must have choked inhabitants. No doubt on such days the city's residents must have enjoyed the chance to escape the settlement and these cramped conditions. Outside the walls lay the lands controlled by the Norse Dubliners, which provisioned the city with food. To the south, the countryside and its views were quite stunning. The Dublin mountains rose steeply on the far side of what was a fertile plain. These views are now completely obscured by the modern city, but it must have been striking to early visitors. On the fertile lands south of the city, acre after acre would have been sown with wheat, barley and other crops. Rural farmsteads dotted this landscape, and in many ways they must have seemed idyllic to the inhabitants of Dublin who were living on top of each other in cramped, smoky conditions. In cramped, smoky conditions. Although when the city was under attack, these isolated farmsteads had their obvious drawbacks, but no more than the thousands of others across medieval Ireland. By the 11th century, Dublin had outgrown the initial settlement. The Norse, by then, had expanded their settlement to the north side of the River Liffey, then a sprawling river stretching to over 300 metres in width in some parts. However, Dublin's most notable addition in the 11th century began in 1028, and as we shall see, it was something that symbolised Viking Dublin's assimilation into Gaelic society. While the Norse at Dublin, and indeed the Vikings generally, were long associated with paganism and were famous for raiding Christian monasteries, they had not been hostile to all Christians, even in their earliest days. 
close to numerous Viking settlements across Europe, Christian monasteries had survived, and Dublin was no exception. A Christian influence had been making inroads in Dublin since its earliest days. The presence of Gaelic slaves, often taken from monasteries, brought the religious ideals of Christianity into the settlement. Through the course of the 10th century, trading and increased intermarriage with the Gaelic-Irish led to an increase in the spread of Christianity into the settlement, so much so that Citric Silkenbeard's father, Amlov, died at the monastery of Iona in 981, not on a raid, but as the place where he had chosen to spend his exile. That said, there is limited evidence of churches in early Dublin itself, and Amlov and the early Vikings who converted may well have had a relaxed attitude to specific Christian ideas. By Citric's day, things were changing, and in an act that would have shocked his ancestors from the 9th century as much as his ancestors' victims, in 1028, Citric went on a pilgrimage to Rome. This act that is often seen as the official Christianisation of Dublin, in physical terms, was certainly true anyway. As well as travelling halfway across the continent, Citric bequeathed land in Dublin city to build a church. The land he chose was at the very centre of medieval Dublin, on a high ridge overlooking the river, on a site free from flooding. It was here, in 1028, that Dublin's first cathedral was built, on the site where Christchurch Cathedral stands today. While no one can doubt Citric Silkenbeard's Christianity, there may well have been other forces at play. In Rome, Citric had secured an archbishopric for Dublin. This wasn't just because he wanted to hear mass from a bishop, but across Europe during this period, the political power of bishops was significant, and they were often used to bolster the power of kings, as they would bring administrative capabilities to a city. No doubt as well, Citric was attracted by the prestige associated with such a move. Citric returned from Rome in 1030, but he was not rewarded for his piety. While Dublin's economy may well have been enjoying relative stability in relation to attacks from the outside, politically the city was increasingly caught up in strife. Aside from this, life started to go seriously wrong for Citric from 1030 onwards. When he arrived home, he was greeted by the bad news of his mother Gormla's death. Gormla was a Gaelic-Irish noblewoman who was originally from Leinster, but had married Citric's father, Anlov Caron. She had also been married to Muel Shocknell and Brian Baru at different times in her life, which made Citric and Dunica half-brothers, but clearly there was no love lost between them. This tragedy for Citric was followed up quickly by the death of his son Glunearing, who was killed in Brega the same year. While three years later, another son, Amlov, who he had gone to such lengths to ransom, was killed in England while going on a pilgrimage to Rome. As Citric's family was decimated around him, it was probably the worst time for him to face a feud with other Norse families within the Norse political region of the Irish Sea. However, Citric could not choose the time to face his foes. Since the 1020s, his bitter rivals, the Norse family, the Harlsons, had begun to rise in power in the shape of a man called Echmarkuk. Through that decade, Echmarkuk gained power and influence fighting in Scotland 
with none other than Macbeth, whom William Shakespeare would immortalise in a play of the same name six centuries later. By the mid-1030s, tensions between the Harrelsons and Citric reached fever pitch after Citric executed the King of Waterford in 1035. The following year, despite having maintained power through years of warfare around him, Citric began to struggle. In 1036, Eckmarkuk landed at Dublin, perhaps buoyed on by the fact that Citric had lost his sons. In the end, Citric, after a long reign, seems to have gone out without a whimper. He didn't even struggle. An old man now, perhaps he knew the game was up. Eckmarkuk, for his part, did not kill Citric, but instead he exiled him from the city that Citric and his family had built. It had been Citric's grandfather, Citric Keach, who had led the return of the Vikings to Dublin in 917, after their expulsion in 902. And his father, Amlov, who had navigated the city through the difficult later 10th century. In 1036, as the boat left Dublin, carrying Citric, he must have looked forlornly at the city that he had helped create for the last time. Although he would live until 1042, his influence in politics in Ireland waned. Citric's leaving signalled the end of a man who is regarded by many as Viking Dublin's greatest king. The year of Citric's exile, 1036, saw another major figure exit Gaelic Ireland. That year, Flavartoch died. He had returned from Rome in 1036, but had really shown little interest in politics outside of Ulster. Like Citric's exile, his death was a marker. He was the last powerful king of the Canaleone and the wider Northern O'Neill kingdom in the 11th century. It would be the 12th century before a powerful O'Neill king would rise again. Flavartoch was also the last person still alive who had played a major role in that great struggle between Brian and Welsh Ocknell. Flavartoch had never really lived up to the potential he had showed in his early days and his death not only signalled the decline of the O'Neills but also a changing Ireland. While North Dublin was caught up in feuding and the O'Neills were in decline, the opposite could be said for Leinster. As we saw earlier, the King of Leinster, Gilla Patrick, could not live long enough to emulate Brian Boru. But the Kingdom of Leinster was quickly turning into a melting pot of violence. This situation was inevitably going to produce a great king, and it was out of this cauldron that stepped the next great challenger, the Kinchley King, Dermot Machmuel Namo. But before we look at Dermot's life, we will just take a quick break. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Now to return to the 11th century and the Kingdom of Leinster. As the great powers of Gaelic Ireland in Munster and the O'Neills in the north declined, the centre of politics moved to the Kingdom of Leinster, a kingdom we have barely touched on up to now. Medieval Leinster did not correspond to the modern province of the same name. It was far smaller, covering Wexford, Carlow, Leash, Wicklow, South County Dublin and Kildare, or to those who are not familiar with Irish geography, the southeastern quarter of the island. It is not featured heavily in the story so far as it hadn't been a major player in Ireland since about the 840s. As we saw earlier, the traditional kings of Leinster, the Edulings, were displaced when Gilapatric, the king of Austria, captured and blinded the king, Donacha Machduling. Gilapatric then dominated Leinster until his sudden death in 1039. The following three years saw great uncertainty in the province. While the Edulings retook the kingship, they were only able to maintain their power with the aid of Dunica, King of Munster, and this situation just couldn't last. They faced widespread opposition, particularly particularly from the Ekinchalic dynasty in South Leinster, then ruled by an energetic king, Diarmid Machmuel Namo. Diarmid was clearly a potential threat. He had become king in 1032 on the death of his father and had solidified his base by eliminating internal opposition. He had gone on to conquer the Viking city of Watford in 1037. By 1041, the Edulings were not willing to allow another Gilapatric to rise, so they took action, calling on their ally Dunica, the king of Munster. Together they attacked Diarmid with the clear intention of undermining his power. They weighed lace to the lands of South Leinster and burned the settlement of Ferns. While in the short term the attack had the desired effect in that it certainly cut Diarmid to size, in the long run this attack would haunt Dunica in particular and in time he would pay dearly for this. While Dunica may have thought he left Diarmid ruling over a pile of ashes in 1041, he must have been uneasy when he learned the following year that not only had his ally, the Edulin king, been killed in battle, but now Diarmid, the man he had humiliated and made an enemy of, had taken the place of the Edulin king of Leinster. Well, unnerving and a potential problem for Dunica in the long term, in the short term Diarmid posed no threat, because saying he was the king of Leinster and being the king of Leinster were not the same thing. Indeed, for the first few years, staying alive was not a foregone conclusion, as Diarmid struggled to enforce his authority. By 1046, he had successfully stabilised his rule in Leinster, and Dunica felt he needed to act to curb what was clearly the growing power of Diarmid. In 1048, he led an army on a circuit, enforcing his authority, taking hostages and submission from Mead, Brega, Dublin and Ossery before arriving in Leinster. Diarmid, perhaps still reeling from the devastating attack 
seven years previously, begrudgingly submitted, but his animosity to Dunica never abated. That Dunica was able to take submission from all these kingdoms was an illustration of just how fragmented Ireland had become. Dunica was by no means a powerful king. If anything, he was weak. Parts of eastern Munster had fallen from his control and he had allowed his family's long-term enemy, the Ogonacht of Cashel, to resurface when they had seemed utterly annihilated a few decades before. In 1048, while he could dominate these smaller kingdoms, he hardly inspired confidence. If anything, the fact that a man like Dunica could rise to such power just served as an incentive to others. It was in this scenario that Diarmid Machmuel Namo, the new king of Leinster, had no intention of being bound by his submission to Dunica. Two years later, in 1050, he tested Dunica's strength by attacking Meath. However, he had misjudged the situation. Later in the year, he was unable to stop Dunica, who arrived in Leinster and humiliated Diarmid by taking more hostages. Dunica may have been weak, but Diarmid was still weaker. But he wasn't short of ambition. To break free of Dunica and to consolidate his power, Diarmid needed to expand fast and grow in power before Dunica could cut him to size. Now this was not easily done in Gaelic Ireland, where territory was constantly and ferociously fought over. Indeed, there was only one place that Diarmid could conquer that would truly transform his power in this manner. And in 1052, he turned his gaze to the wealthy city of Dublin. The wealth of Dublin had helped many a king in Gaelic Ireland in their rise to power, and if taken, it could transform Diarmid's power too. Lying on the fringe of Leinster, it was easily accessible to Diarmid, but as tempting as it was, Dublin could also be a poison chalice, and it was not easily controlled. Nonetheless, in 1052, Diarmid took this bull by the horns and began raiding the territory north of Dublin, known as Fingal. Heading south, eventually he arrived on the north bank of the River Liffey, perhaps passing the battlefield of Clontarf. Outside the city, the Vikings tried to make a stand, but long gone were the days where they could resist such an attack, and Ekmarchuk, who had replaced Citric Silkenbeard 16 years earlier, fled the city, leaving Dublin to the mercy of Diarmid's army. However, Diarmid had no intention of ransacking Dublin. Its wealth and power were far too important. Instead, he had far greater plans. He was going to put Dublin to good use. Standing in the conquered settlement, he only had to look at the city's docks to see its massive wealth. If he could control Dublin, he would not only control its vast financial resources, but also its substantial naval power. The key question was how to administer it. Capturing Dublin was one thing, Keeping it was another. Diarmid knew all too well how dangerous the city could prove. Indeed, all he had to do was look north from its defences towards Clontarf to be reminded of the role the city and its kings had played in the downfall of Brian Baru. The settlement had proved elusive to Muel Shocknell as well. He had struggled to dominate Dublin. Indeed, his destruction of the settlement in 1015 
may have been because he did not know what else to do. These previous Gaelic conquerors had often tried to control Dublin by supporting one Norse faction over another, using the incessant feuding as a mechanism to maintain control. Unsurprisingly, this almost always eventually ended in disaster. When Dermot arrived, there was clearly a faction he could support in Citric's family, who had been displaced from power. But this would not be stable. No longer would they have been in power than they would start their intrigues and feuding that plagued Norse Dublin. No, Dermot needed something better, something more stable. And in this situation he did what must have seemed to Manny as audacious as it was unthinkable. Instead of installing a potential enemy to rule Dublin, Dermot would rule it himself. And in 1052, Dermot Machmuel Namo became the first Gaelic king of Dublin. For Dermot, this was truly transformative. He now controlled what was the greatest single economic centre in Ireland, with connections across Europe, as we have seen stretching from the Americas into Asia. North Dublin also had a degree of control over several Viking settlements in the Irish Sea, stretching up to the Western Isles of Scotland. This was now in Dermot's hands, as were the purse strings of the city, not to mention its mercenary forces. Across Ireland, this no doubt set alarm bells ringing. Everyone must have realised that if Dermot could manage to harness Dublin's potential power, effectively it would transform him and thereby change the balance of power in Gaelic Ireland. The man most affected by such a move was clearly Dunica, the King of Munster, and he had to act. He needed to get Dermot out of Dublin. He could not let the man, Dunica could not let a man who harboured such hatred to him rise in power. For this campaign, Dunica found willing allies. The King of Meath, with extensive lands just north of Dublin, sensed the danger as well and shared Dunica's concerns. In 1052, the two joined forces and started to attack Dublin and the surrounding territory, burning and pillaging as they went. In moments like these, the isolated farms, while not stinking and cramped like the city itself, were vulnerable. Perhaps many of the inhabitants simply fled leaving them to the mercy of raiding armies. While they could ravage the countryside, try as they may, Dunica and his allies could not drive Dermot out of the all-important Dublin. And soon he began to use the city's resources to expand his power. While it was clear that Dunica could see the transformative impact Dublin would have on Dermot's power, and seemed willing to do anything to stop him, by the end of 1053, he had a far greater problem on his hands when two of Dunica's greatest enemies allied against him, threatening his very rule of Munster. As we saw earlier, Dunica had organised the assassination of his half-brother Tig in 1023. While eliminating a major threat to his power, he had created a bitter enemy in Tig's young son, Thurlock. By 1053, Thurlock was old enough to challenge Dunica, driven not only by a sense of revenge, but also a desire to claim a throne he felt was rightfully his. Just as Thurlock was coming of age, Dunica had been engaged not only in his conflict with Dermid, but also he had fought an inconclusive struggle with A. O'Connor, the King of Connacht. And naturally enough, Thurlock and A. soon found common cause. In 1053, driven by their shared hatred of Dunica, the two new allies... A and Thurlock led an invasion of North Munster. 
things went from bad to worse for Dunica in the following year, when Dermot Machwell Namo, having solidified his rule in Dublin and Leinster, saw the chance to take vengeance on Dunica and joined the alliance of Turlach and A. Now Dunica was boxed in, with nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, and no significant allies, facing the military disaster of an attack on two fronts. In 1054, this came when Diarmid and his Leinster army rolled in from the east, while an army of Connacht poured down from the north. Dunica was totally unable to deal with such an assault. By the following year, Dunica was barely even holding on to power when Turlock defeated him in battle in North Clare. Dunica was in a desperate spot, but in many ways he had no one to blame but himself. He had seen himself as a king in his father's mould, but he simply was not powerful enough to emulate the feats of Brian Baru and dominate other kingdoms. Yet he had still tried, the result being that he had made more enemies than he could handle, and in the 1050s this came home to roost. In 1055, Diarmid sent his Viking allies from Dublin up the Shannon, but Dunica wouldn't fight. In 1058, Turlock and Diarmid, leading his army of Leinster, Dublin and Austri forces, attacked again from the east. The principal town in Dunica's territory was Limerick, and it was here the attack focused. Dunica's power was just hanging on by a thread, and he certainly was not able to stop such a formidable advance. When Diarmid reached Limerick, it was not defended, but instead it had been set ablaze by Dunica, who was now in retreat. This was pure desperation. Such a tactic might have worked if Dunica had had vast spaces to retreat into, but he didn't have such luxuries. At Schlievecrot in the Galpy Mountains, in South Tipperary, Diarmid and Turlock finally caught up with Dunica. The inevitability of the outcome of the following battle must have made it difficult for Dunica to keep his army intact. And those who stuck with Dunica paid the price and were resoundedly beaten. In the aftermath of this defeat, Dunica now showed aristocratic arrogance that we have seen all too often. And rather than relinquish power, he preferred to see his kingdom and its people destroyed. The following year, he submitted to the King of Connacht, hoping this might save him. But Diarmid was not subordinate to A, so it had little impact. And as we shall see next, Diarmid, allied to Turlock, was relentless. Despite his submission to A, Dunica still had to face Diarmid and Turlock in 1059. Barely holding power, he did not even attempt to fight the two when they attacked that year. By 1060, he was clearly beaten, and in an effort to save himself, he now submitted to Diarmid Machwell Namo. Nineteen years previously, he had made a bitter enemy of Diarmid when he had attacked his territory and burned the settlement of Ferns, and now he was reaping the consequences. By submitting to Diarmid, he was clearly reneging on his submission to A of the previous year. Furious, A now stormed into Thomond, reaching the family fortress at Kinkora and destroying it along with the neighbouring monastery of Killaloo. Dunica was in an impossible position, and worse still, he was subjecting the people of Munster to constant warfare. He could not hold either Diarmid or A off, but he couldn't submit to both of them either. The only way out was to relinquish his power. 
The end finally came in 1063, when Diarmid and Thurlock invaded. The two separated their forces, and Thurlock found Dunica and heavily defeated him. This time, the defeat was total, and Dunica, while saving his skin, lost the kingship. On some level, it must have been a huge relief for Dunica that it was finally all over, given the writing had been on the wall for years. Whatever relief Dunica felt, it must have been tenfold for people across Munster, as some semblance of stability could now return as Thurlock became king. Ironically, despite the misery and the death his attempts to hold on to power had caused, Dunica himself survived. Alive but powerless, he left Ireland on a pilgrimage to Rome, where he died in 1064. While Thurlock was dealing Dunica's kingship a death blow, Diarmid had moved through the rest of Munster, taking hostages from the dominant families as he went. Then he returned to Thurlock and handed him over these hostages, reinforcing Thurlock's new position as King of Munster. Diarmid wasn't just helping a son avenge his father's death in handing over these hostages. He knew all too well what a problem a hostile King of Munster could be, and through effectively installing Thurlock as King, he now had an ally where once he had a bitter opponent. For Thurlock, he had achieved what must have been a burning desire since he had been a child and Dunica had killed his father. But he had inherited a seriously weakened kingdom. Years of war left the defensive infrastructure in ruins while the family fortress of Kincorla had been destroyed. He knew as well that he would not have been king without Diarmid Machmuel Namoa's help and he seems to have never forgotten this. Diarmid, for his part, was now unquestionably the most powerful king in Ireland. Thurlock, Thurlock, king of Munster, would never question his rule, and the other traditional powers were in no position to challenge him. In the north, the northern O'Neills were about to descend into a 30-year civil war between rival branches of the family, the O'Neills and the McLaughlins, when the king, Argar McLaughlin, died in 1064. In Mead, the southern O'Neills were in terminal decline, barely able to maintain their own borders, being constantly harassed by Diarmid's son, Murkud, based in Dublin. That said, Diarmid did not try and extend his rule over these powers, but instead he focused his energies in a new theatre. When Diarmid assumed control of Dublin, he did not just use the city to expand his power in Ireland. His ambition and vision had a much farther reach. In 1061, Diarmid's son Murkud set sail out of Dublin to reinforce the city and in this case Diarmid's authority over the Isle of Man, an island off the coast of Britain that had long been controlled by the Norse of Dublin. Murkud met with great success when he forced the Vikings and their king Ragnall to submit and pay tribute, bringing the Isle of Man into Diarmid's extended possessions. Indeed Dublin's connection spread farther than just the Isle of Man. Politically, it had long influenced politics in Wales and Saxon England, hosting exiled kings and at times directly intervening in the affairs of northern England in particular. Diarmid would continue this practice and aim to use these connections to expand his power. When Diarmid conquered Dublin, the most famous exile there was Cynan ap Iago. Cynan was a Welsh prince exiled from Wales when his father, Iago, had been murdered. In Dublin, he married Rhinalta, the granddaughter of Citric Silkenbeard. And in 1055, while the city was under Diarmid's rule, they had a son 
Griffith, this boy would later go on to become the King of Wales. For Diarmid and Ireland in general, an exile of far greater consequences arrived in 1051. This was Harald Godwinson, an Anglo-Saxon earl who had been exiled by the Saxon King of England, Edward the Confessor. Harald was hosted by Diarmid and left Ireland in 1052, but the Godwinson family connection to Ireland and Diarmid did not end there. Harald Godwinson's fortunes improved and he eventually succeeded in taking the throne of England in January 1066 when Edward the Confessor died. However, Harald's claim was contested by both the King of Norway and the Duke of Normandy. The events that followed would not only convulse England but had enormous ramifications for Ireland and indeed Western European history. The first to challenge Harald Godwinson was the King of Norway Harald Hardradra, who invaded the north of England in September 1066. This invasion was well known in Dublin, where Harald Hardradra had found many recruits. Hardradra's attempt ended in disaster as his army was annihilated and he was killed at the Battle of Stamford Bridge on September 25th, 1066. Among the few who escaped was one Godred Haraldson, a Dublin Viking and a grandnephew of Citric Silkenbeard and a future king of the city. While Godred escaped with his life to Dublin and relayed the story of the great Anglo-Saxon victory, the Anglo-Saxons themselves scarcely had time to draw breath before they faced the second invasion, this time from the south. This was an invasion of Normans led by the Duke of Normandy, William the Bastard. The Normans were Vikings who had settled in the province of Normandy in France. William the Bastard had a tenuous claim to succeed Edward the Confessor and he landed an army on the south coast of England on September 28, 1066. After marching the length of England to face William, the Anglo-Saxons led, led by Harald Godwinson were routed in the Battle of Hastings and William the Bastard set about conquering all of England and inquiring a slightly more flattering name, William the Conqueror. At Hastings, Harald Godwinson that man who had taken refuge in Dublin in 1051 was killed, famously being shot by an arrow through the eye, and his family was scattered across Europe. At least two of his sons, Godwin and Edwin, and a cousin, Tostig, fled to Dublin, bringing hair-raising tales of Norman brutality. At Dublin, they found Diarmid and his son, Murchad, more than willing hosts. Not only would Diarmid host these sons of Harold Godwinson, but next we will see him begin to plot with them about how they could take back their father's kingdom. As Diarmid heard the stories of William's invasion, he saw an opportunity. In 1066, he was already reaping the benefits of having installed Turlock as king of Munster, and he no doubt saw the potential to extend his influence across the Irish Sea now. If he could reinstall the sons of Harold Godwinson in England, he would gain great influence across the Irish Sea. To this end, in 1068, Diarmid fitted out a fleet at Dublin and Godwin, Edwin and Tostig took some soldiers and set about to attempt to reverse the Norman invasion. Initially, they attacked the town of Bristol, but were soon driven back. In Ireland, for Diarmid, it was a long wait. After he watched the fleet set sail, 
he wouldn't find out for months about how they were getting on. After their reversal at Bristol, after their reversal at Bristol, the army landed at Somerset, the former lands of the Godwinsons. There they defeated a Norman army and in the weeks afterwards ravaged the lands of Devon and Cornwall before returning to Ireland. When they returned to Ireland, Dermid was sufficiently impressed and he financed another campaign in 1069. This was a great investment on Dermid's part as a fleet of 64 ships set sail in June 1069. Again they landed on the southwest coast of England where they encountered the Norman lord Brian Fitzedo and were decisively beaten and had to return to Ireland. Arriving back in Dublin, Godwin and his relatives no doubt pressed Dermot hard to follow up with further attempts at driving back the Norman invasion. But in 1070, everything changed. Firstly, the Norman King of England, now known as William the Conqueror, led a campaign called the Harrying of the North, where he utterly annihilated an ongoing Anglo-Saxon rebellion, inducing a famine and starving tens of thousands of people thereby breaking resistance to the Norman occupation. When Harold's sons in Dublin heard this, they knew they would be hard-pressed to convince Dermot of renewing his efforts. Hopes of a fresh campaign in 1070 were dashed further when Murkut, Dermot's son, who had been the ruler of Dublin, died. This was compounded even further when another son, Glunearing, was killed in a raid on Mead the same year. Suddenly, Dermot was now left to oversee quite a substantial territory himself. The thoughts of financing raids on an enemy that was far away, who had just solidified his position so brutally, was less than appealing, and he rejected any overtures from Godwin for a third raid on Norman England. Any hope of further raids disappeared the following year, when Dermot's nephews, sons of his brother Donal, began to challenge his power, perhaps sensing he was weakened by the loss of his sons, particularly Murkut. Dermot, however, was able to call on Thurlock, who had not forgotten Dermot's aid to him when he was trying to take over Munster. Thurlock, no doubt, had his own interests too, though. He didn't want another powerful kingdom rising in Leinster. He hoped to replace Dermot when he died as the island's most powerful king. Dermot and Thurlock easily dispatched the threat, but the uprising of Dermot's nephews was indicative of his declining authority. As Dermot seemed to be regaining some control of the situation, the unpredictability of the medieval world struck again. The following year of 1072, Dermot launched yet another raid on Mead. He seemed intent on ensuring that the Southern O'Neills would never return to power. In this raid, Dermot and the Leinster army were confronted at Odba near Navan. Despite having fought dozens of similar encounters, Dermot's hour had come and he was killed. Having ruled Leinster for over 30 years had been groundbreaking. In some annals he was even referred to as the King of Wales and although this is a complete and utter exaggeration it is a reference to his overseas exploits. Dermot had in many ways changed Gaelic Ireland even more than Brian Boru in that he had begun to expand beyond the island's geographical extents. His financing of the raids on Norman England illustrated his vision and indeed they had an impact. In 1069, William the Conqueror was besieging Eli but had to call off his siege because of these raids 
while the Doomsday Book, a record of England compiled in the 1080s, recorded lands in Devon as being laid waste by the Irishmen, a reference to the raids of 1069. In Ireland, Diarmuid was called the High King with Opposition, a new title which would be afforded to the last of the High Kings, as none would ever truly dominate the island in the way Brian, Welsh Ochnall or even Flan Sinna had. I use the term the last of the High Kings because Diarmuid had begun Ireland's relationship with Norman England, one that would be utterly devastating a century later. Next time we will see Brian Baru's grandson Turlock step out from Diarmuid's shadow and pursue an entirely different relationship with the Normans. Until next time, Sloan. And if you've any questions, comments or queries, don't hesitate to contact me at history at irishhistorypodcast.ie. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.